0: This podcast, normally explicit, is not so today. It's Thursday, July 28th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and the Mega Millions jackpot is up to $1.02 billion. By law, we have to assume you cannot hear words that start with a B. Therefore, we have to say that's billion with a B you know how big $1.02 billion is? Well, every single news station in America wants to put it in perspective. I literally saw a guy saying, if every dollar was a dash on the highway road, you could go from Cleveland to LA and back 498 times, and then you'd get to a billion dollars. Oh, thanks for clarifying it. But every dash isn't a dollar? And who wants to go from Cleveland to LA? All right, it was a Cleveland station, but still. And 498 times. Did you really clarify it or just add a bunch of extra abstractions for us to get confused about? But I will give you a little bit of an idea about how big the 1.02 billion dollars of it is. That 0.02, that was the last time someone won the Mega Millions. It was for $20 million, that's literally .02. And it's not like no one played the Mega Millions then. I'd say 20 is still a mega amount of millions, that's millions with an M. Millions of people played trying to win that $20 million, which is now a rounding error for the big drawing that will happen tomorrow. The other big thing that's going on is many, many news articles about how unhappy lottery winners are. Washington Post, as Mega Millions hits one billion, winning doesn't mean a happy ending. No, nothing means anything. But the idea that winning the lottery correlates to sadness is both an outdated and disproved and thoroughly ubiquitous idea. I give you Time Magazine, January 12th, 2016, Powerball, How Winning the Lottery Makes You Miserable. And then two years later, 2018, Everything you know about the fate of lottery winners is wrong. Well, what's everything I know? Some of what I know was based on your magazine two years prior, and it was the incorrect idea that winning the lottery makes you miserable. It's quite an interesting statement about human psychology that we need this idea. The idea is often cited to a statistic credited to the National Endowment for Financial Education, That says, according to the National Endowment for Financial Education, 70% of lottery winners eventually go bankrupt. And if you research that idea, you get a bunch of hits citing it, but you get one hit, and thankfully it's a prominent hit, from the organization itself saying, we have no idea why anyone would cite us in relation to that statistic. We've never done a study where this statistic was even tested, let alone proved. The good statistics or good studies include in 2006, a study of the Journal of Health Economics of lottery winners in Britain found that winners, quote, go on to exhibit significantly better psychological health. And a study of US lottery winners from the 80s found that winning a lot of money increased reported savings rates. No kidding. Now there is one story, one famous or infamous story, I think that has a large hold on our imagination. A guy named Jack Whitaker. Maybe you've heard about him or seen him. If I show you a picture, he wears a black cowboy hat. He won a huge lottery in West Virginia in the early 2000s. And a reporter named April Witt did a really compelling story about the guy because he had so much happen to him after he won these over $100 million prize. But the thing about Jack Whitaker, well, here's April Witt from a C SPAN interview.
1: He went into a strip club in um, Cross Lanes, West Virginia, the Pink Pony, and put $50,000 down on the bar. Well, people were not used to seeing that kind of money down on the counter, and the managers were worried that that cash would attract trouble.
0: So, if you're the kind of guy who's going to pull that stuff, you had a little bit of that in you, maybe a lot of it in you before. And what happened to Whitaker? According to some
1: women who've since sued him, he sexually harassed some attendants at the racetrack. He just got too big for his britches, they would say, in West Virginia and um, sort of was rough with these female attendants.
0: Things went even worse from there. His life unraveled. His granddaughter died of a drug overdose. So many people who were somehow associated with him in his largesse came to regret Ever having known him, I wish we could have ripped up that lottery ticket, said his, by now, by then, ex-wife, Jewel. But it's a little like Kim Kardashian and the sex tape. The huge exception holds a prime place in our imagination. Everyone's like, I'm going to do a sex tape. It'll launch me to a famous career. It worked for Kim Kardashian. Yeah, and no one else. So I'm not saying no one else, no other. If if you search, you will find stories of someone who won $10 million and then declared bankruptcy in Canada and someone who won $15 million and didn't do well in the UK. But there are thousands of lottery winners. And the stories we tell would tend to gravitate to the ones that have elements of drama, which is conflict, which is usually a rise and fall and perhaps rise again a quick injection, a deus ex machina of 10 or a billion dollars from the gods, and then living quietly and never bothering anyone in the national media, that is not a story that is told. So it is not true that if you win this billion dollars, you will likely declare bankruptcy or be unhappy. It is also not true that you will win this billion dollars. But if you do, as I understand how these things work, Good luck walking from Cleveland to Los Angeles. On the show today, I spiel about a Senate hearing about policing that shows our partisan divide and just how hard it is for any involved citizen to really understand the priorities and problems of our country. But first, July 20, 2012, a man enters a Colorado movie theater, and shoots and kills 12 people during a showing of a Batman film. Dozens more are injured, some seriously. We talked to this man's psychiatrist, Dr. Lynn Fenton, about her new book, Aurora, the psychiatrist who treated the movie theater killer, tells her story. The killer, as we name him often, I should forewarn, was James Holmes, the psychiatrist, Dr. Lynn Fenton, details her sessions with a soon-to-be mass shooter, and that's up next. On July 20th, 2012, which I realize is the day, 10 years ago to the day that I am recording this interview, although you will be hearing it at a later date, but 10 years ago to this day, a man named James Holmes entered an Aurora, Colorado screening of a Batman movie and shot and killed 12 people and injured 70. You no doubt Remember that story. Joining me now is the psychiatrist who treated Holmes beforehand, was at the trial. Herself faced, well, not just backlash, but a legal suit because of her treatment. And she now reflects on all of that time. The name of her book is Aurora. The psychiatrist who treated the movie theater killer tells her story. It's co-written by Dr. Lynn Fenton and Kerry Drobin. Dr. Fenton, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me about a little bit about your background and practice before Holmes even became a patient?
1: Yes. Well, I'm a psychiatrist, and I was working at the University of Colorado in Aurora. And um, at the medical campus, we had... W- a student mental health service. So all the graduate students from all the multiple programs, like the medical school, dental school, nursing, and the PhD programs of which um, Holmes was in one, um, all of the students could come using their student insurance to get any type of mental health help, medications, counseling, support from our service.
0: Were you set up to handle serious cases of mental illness?
1: Yes. uh, We would occasionally see somebody, for instance, with schizophrenia or very, very, very severe depression, PTSD, things like that.
0: What were the circumstances that Holmes came to you as a patient?
1: So it's interesting because, you know, most of these mass shooters don't come in for mental health treatment, but but he did. But he actually came for something completely unrelated to wanting to kill people. It was for anxiety. So, he, he's a very um, awkward and nervous kind of guy, and his lab presentations in the P- PhD program apparently were, were so bad that one of his advisors said, you know, hey, we have this student mental health service. Why don't you go in there and see if they can help you with your anxiety? So, that's why he came in.
0: Now, when you said uh, he didn't come in wanting or talking about wanting to kill people, did he ever do that? um generally or specifically with you
1: he never wanted treatment for that he and and the only reason we knew that he had these thoughts is he just said you know kind of off the cuff i have thoughts of killing people very vague and so you know i spent the next several months though that i was working with him over six sessions trying to to understand what that meant you know does are these just sort of obsessive thoughts popping into his head? He doesn't like them? Or is he actually thinking about doing something? And if so, what, what, what are his targets? You know, does he, does he have a date? Does he have a plan how to do this? And, you know, I, I was never able to get any kind of specifics
0: out of him. Had you dealt with uh, that sort of thing before, a patient saying that? And if it did get specific, what are the legal requirements for you around that?
1: It's not uncommon to have people have um, sort of angry or or gruesome or or violent thoughts pop into their head, say, you're super mad at somebody and you're like, I just would like to strangle the person, you know, you sort of in your head and vision that. Um, Or or some people who have um, different types of obsessive disorders or very severe, say, postpartum depression can also have these just um, unwanted violent thoughts come in they're like, ah yeah, why am I what's wrong with me? Why am I thinking about flushing my baby down the toilet, you know things like that
0: right. Um, but they would say what's wrong with me? They would tell talk to them as if it bothered yes. them that they had those thoughts but home yes,
1: kidding. the day that I realized it didn't bother him, oh, I just you know, my stomach just sank. Um, and it, cause I asked him about that and he's like, oh, I don't mind thinking about them. Well, how often do you think about them? five, five or six times a day? It's like, Ugh, this is, this is a different animal. Yeah. A lot of the public or people not familiar with a so-called mental health holder, like, well, why didn't you just lock him up? You know, as soon as he, he expressed these ideas, but, um, uh, because these types of thoughts would be so common and and only a tiny fraction of folks who would think these things would ever actually do something about it um it it's there's pretty strict rules for instance it can't just be a vague statement i think about killing people it's got to be um the person needs to have a target so maybe a person or group or or a a place and it has to be something relatively imminent. Um, so it can't just be why someday I'm going to get back at these people, you know, it's gotta be, I, I hate my mother-in-law and, you know, uh, within the next week or, or as soon as I buy a gun, I'm going to make her sorry, you know, some, something pretty specific like that.
0: If he even said, I want to go to the century 16 movie theater during, absolutely. During th- that would count. And oh, absolutely. I'm going to skip yeah. ahead a little bit. The day before the murder, he mailed you a book, a notebook, part treatise, part manifesto, I'm sure part, um, just hard to decipher what he was saying. But that would absolutely, had you had that in time, been an, an action item. Totally.
1: As as it was, I didn't have any of that stuff, and uh, very unfortunately. And... And so I I did a lot of things, but, you know, we didn't have the ability to just
0: lock them up somewhere. Right. So just tell me in general... As much as you can, and maybe you can even tell me how much you can. It seemed like you were, uh, well, you were asked to testify under oath. I read your book. I don't know to what extent patient-client privilege still exists, but tell me how he presented, what his affect was, and how many, what kind of things you talked about and how he talked about them during your sessions.
1: The judge at the end of the trial made all of the evidence, and so that includes my Time with Holmes, all the forensic evals, et cetera. He made it all public record. So Holmes was just, you know, kind of odd from the get go. I uh, he um, he originally talked to my colleague on the student mental health um, service, our social worker, Margaret Roth, and and she called me right up after she saw him. She's like, "This is the most nervous guy I have." Ever seen, Mm -hmm. and he says he has thoughts of killing people. I don't think he's dangerous, but I think it would be a good idea if you personally saw this guy and we just kind of kept him close. So you know, I contacted him right away. We set up an appointment for a few days later, and um, he was pretty. uh, He's first of all a very smart guy. He's in you know this prestigious neuroscience program. Um, But he was he was beyond just kind of nerdy. Um, I came into the waiting room, he was sort of lounging, like uh, leaning way back in the chair, like in a weird, awkward way, and then sort of sprang mm. standing up. So even his movements were like a little kind of jerky or robotic.
0: And with your military background, we should tell listeners, you were trained to notice these things and to look at the person's gait. And all this is uh, important for your evaluation.
1: Right. And that's actually because my, uh, so psychiatry is my second medical specialty. My one before that is physical medicine and rehabilitation and That's what I was doing when I was in the Air Force, yes. And so we were kind of experts in disability and movement and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I was like, wow, you know, this this is unusual. And that, But the most striking thing in talking to him was how little he would say. His answers were very abrupt. It kind of reminded me of like a teenager who doesn't want to talk to an adult. How are you doing? How was your day at school? Fine. You know, it was kind of like that. And so I really had to try to use any any of my skills to make him more comfortable, get him to talk. And I was just, you know, trying every which way. And it was rare that I would get him to say more than a
0: sentence. But he was there on his own volition. It seems like he was there against his will. But y- you tell me. He wasn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He, because um His advisor had said, you know, hey, why don't you go in to help with your anxiety? So he he came in. He realized, I think, that he was very nervous and very awkward when he had to, like, stand up in front of the group and give, like, a slideshow. And so he willingly was coming in for that
0: aspect. How many sessions did you do with him over what period of time?
1: I saw him six times from um, about over a couple to three months. The last time I saw him was early June,
0: five, six weeks before the shooting. For how serious uh, his condition seemed to be, was that enough therapy, do you think?
1: In some ways, I I, I don't even know if I can call it therapy because he said so little. (laughs) It was more like me trying to understand what the heck was going on with him. I would float some, you know, sort of therapeutic ideas but he you know usually wouldn't respond at all or have sort of a non-sequitur response but that brings us to the point of say you get somebody who um wants to kill people and for some reason Mm -hmm. you you actually Mm -hmm. get them into treatment they're admitting that they want to do this is is there what can you do so um now if it's part of say like a psychosis like say the person's paranoid, schizophrenic, and they're so frightened, they think maybe they need to kill other people because they're after them. Well, you know, we can treat that with antipsychotics. But most of these shooters, it's not really a mental illness per se that's driving them to do the shooting. It's more sort of a a hatred, maybe a a wish to um, be notorious or seen as powerful or themselves to, to be powerful. And I mean, we don't have any treatment for for those types of things or for antisocial personality disorder. There's not therapy or medications to to treat those things. So, you know, I, I would say it that was not an adequate amount of time to treat anybody who actually is, you know, hell-bent on shooting up
0: a place. You prescribe Zoloft or generic for Zoloft, but did you ever make a diagnosis? That was a tricky one.
1: Um, he well, for sure, he had an anxiety disorder, most likely like social anxiety or generalized anxiety.
0: Yeah, that's what the meds were for. Were for. But, that seems like an easy one. Like day one, day one of therapy, you're like, yeah, th- anxiety is yeah, exactly. a big, big umbrella totally. and will give that. you right, right, right.
1: But you know what? What the heck was this other weirdness? You know, and and just his, it, and and what was like driving or what what was behind this? Um, thoughts of killing people. And uh, the closest that I got to a diagnosis was I thought perhaps he had um, one of the personality disorders that we call schizoid personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And that's these sort of like um, strange aloof people who have very few um, human interactions and, and don't really care for it. He didn't quite fit that, but that I thought that was the closest... What I was really worried about was that perhaps he was um, devolving into like an actual psychotic state. A lot of the things he said were weird enough that I was like, that is kind of getting far away from reality. You know, is this a psychotic person? On the one hand, he's very functional. He's, you know, taking care of himself. You you know, he um, has some friends. He's in this Ph.D. program. On the other hand, just his statements were so bizarre. So I I was, you know, trying hard to to see if maybe this was becoming a new psychotic illness, which I potentially could have hospitalized him for and get him on medications.
0: There are two court, a couple court appointed psychiatrists. One was William Reed, one was Jeffrey Metzner. They actually, after he was arrested, met with him uh, more in depth and longer than you did. And I'll also add to that maybe he had less to hide with them. But Metzner diagnosed him as having schizoaffective disorder and Reed found schizotypal personality. I'm not exactly sure what these mean. Mm -hmm. To me, the layman, it means something like schiz-ish, you know, not quite schizophrenia. But do you think um you know do you think you missed those diagnoses
1: i you know i looked closely for those and i at the time i saw him he did not have those um now of course when schizophrenia or schizotypal um disorder develops then you can have kind of a prodrome where they're a little off and they're sort of heading mm-hmm. that direction um but to me i mean i i never saw him after our, our therapy finished but what i saw of him i i still don't think he has a, a full blown psychotic disorder but um it, it, but regardless of what we exactly what we say his diagnosis is what it came down to for for the trial and and why he did this um, was that he knew what he was doing so like he lied to me um during the last month of our treatment he actually was amassing an arsenal and going to the shooting range yes. range but saying oh no you know i'm i'm not going to do this um and right. i don't have any weapons um so and and every every bit of evidence they collected for the trial indicated that he knew right from wrong. He realized this was a bad thing. So unlike a very rare, like really psychotic person who actually doesn't understand this good thing, like say maybe a mom with terrible postpartum psychosis who kills her child because she thinks she's helping them, you know, the devil is in mm-hmm. them or something. But but Holmes yeah. knew knew what he was doing, he, it, you know, he took like months of planning and, um, you know, it, it was clear that even if he had some kind of psychotic-ish disorder, it, that was, um, that did not prevent him from knowing right from wrong.
0: Do you think James Holmes was treatable?
1: <sighs> Boy, you know, um, I and the consultant were trying to convince him to take an antipsychotic um, because by the last few treatments, I thought, you know, even if it's just like a personality disorder, he's got this uh, kind of a psychotic level thinking, and sometimes a low dose of an antipsychotic can help with that. So I I think maybe if he had taken one of those, you know, that might have straightened out his thinking a little bit. Um, but but such a large portion of it just seemed to be the more this sort of antisocial kind of uh, hatred or, like, no good reason. I'm I'm just going to kill people, which it just made no sense. Um, and that part, I,
0: I just, I don't know how to read. Lynn Fenton is a psychiatrist at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. She is the co-author, along with Carrie Drobin, of the new book, Aurora, the psychiatrist who treated the movie theater killer, tells her story. Thank you so much, Dr. Fenton.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast,
1: Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback
0: story? And now the spiel. Tuesday was a day for hearings into weapons and policing on Capitol Hill. The House Oversight Committee is investigating semi-automatic rifles, they dubbed them assault rifles, and several manufacturers were before them for a sparring match in a rare occurrence. The Liberal Democrats came better armed for this fight. But Wednesday, after the hearings, Wednesday was to be a day for legislating and that didn't happen and it's not going to happen. Neither the assault weapons ban nor a policing bill was introduced. The assault weapons ban, again, their phrase, may never happen given seven rural Democrats aren't on board. As to policing, it's possible to pass a bill. The problem is the tension between progressives and the Congressional Black Caucus on one hand and moderates and centrists on the other hand what should we have more of police accountability or police funding the centrists say accountability is fine we want the funding the progressives say funding's not so great we need the accountability To quote Politico, moderate Democrats have pushed for months for floor votes to show their commitment to supporting local police. After a scourge of GOP attack ads last cycle portrayed their party as anti-cop and soft on crime, those attacks, according to the Democrats' own campaign arm, were, quote, alarmingly potent in key swing districts, and many Battleground members believe it cost the party seats in the last election. The House is at a standstill. Over in the Senate, a hearing on policing offered a lot of insight as to party priorities and constraints. Though Democrat Dick Durbin chairs the Justice Committee, the meeting was called at the request of Republican Chuck Grassley, which Durbin allowed in the spirit of bipartisanship, but also to show that yes, Democrats care about policing as well. Durbin may have regretted giving Republicans the floor, especially at the point when Tom Tillis of North Carolina pointed to a Democratic fundraising site hosting one fundraiser in the low thousands of dollars, which was to raise money for a 13.12-mile run. Why 13.12 miles? Don't ask me. Ask Tom Tillis. Why 3.12 miles? Because 3.12... Translates into the alphabet for A C A B, which equals all cops are bastards. This is on the Act Blue website that they raised two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on. The same website raised five hundred and thirteen million dollars between April the first and June thirtieth of this year. This radical concept of defunding the police has gone from the radical left, a minority of the party to something that the primary fundraising engine for liberal progressives is now touting. Durbin disassociated himself with that sentiment, and all the fundraising done on that site in the name of progressive causes can't be traced back to Democratic senators, Durbin pointed out. Later, Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, had this to say in defense of his party. Last thing in the world we want to do is delegitimize our police, or defund them. In fact, I've advocated that we give them more resources. Blumenthal's sentiment was echoed by Senators Klobuchar and White House, Democrats all, with law enforcement backgrounds. They were either all state AGs or district attorneys or U.S. attorneys. And they all talked about the programs they funded and the bills they co-sponsored with Republicans. I found out White House co-sponsored one with Josh Hawley. And these bills generally help police recruitment or increase police resources. Here's Klobuchar. I wanted to just clarify a few things. I just heard about defund the police. I'll give you an example of uh, my city in Minneapolis. There was a ballot initiative um, that was described that way. I opposed it. So did uh, the governor. And it actually was defeated in a liberal city
1: Um, and um,
0: i think one of the focuses has got to be as you all know reforming um, some of the practices but at the same time funding the police Nothing inaccurate there, a position I endorse. But when it came to Republicans, they weren't just convincing listeners of the double negative of being against defunding. They were taking up the issue full-throatedly in a way that someone concerned with crime might identify with. Now, Senators Cruz and Blackburn, they demagogued a bit. But Chuck Grassley cited the FBI statistic of 73 police officers intentionally killed last year, meaning felonious killings, not accidents or COVID That is the most since 2001. Then Mike Lee of Utah talked about just a couple incidents in his state. Utah, more police officers were shot at in 2021 than in any other recorded year, resulting in injury to eight police officers. In one of those cases, two officers were injured when they went simply to check on a man who was lying in the grass near the sheriff's office in Salt Lake City. And uh, as they were doing that, The man opened fire on them, and just last week, a four-year-old boy shot at police officers from inside a vehicle in Salt Lake City, claiming that he had been encouraged to do precisely that by his father. That couldn't have happened, and yet it did. A 27-year-old Salt Lake
1: City man is in jail tonight after police say he told his four-year-old to fire a weapon
0: at officers.
1: Officers with the Unified Police Department say this is unlike anything. They've seen their entire careers.
0: Fox 13 Utah with that clip. Anecdotes aren't data, but in this case, anecdotes bear out the data. Policing is difficult, increasingly difficult, increasingly deadly. If you're an unarmed black man, should you be more frightened of being killed by police than a police officer should be afraid of being killed in the line of duty. The answer is the police officer, statistically speaking, should be much more afraid. It's not close. By the way, it should be the police officer is more afraid. He swore an oath. He put himself or she put herself in the line of danger. And as tragic as any killing is, police do sign up for it. An unarmed individual not actively engaged in assaulting the police should not fear for his life. But I do think in national media coverage and within the kinds of communities where police are unpopular, the perception is backwards the perception of danger. In most of America, however, the sentiment is that police are under assault. That is a prevalent sentiment. And police themselves certainly believe it's true. And as we pointed out, there is data to back up those beliefs. You can see through the statements of the Democratic senators on the Judiciary Committee that they understand these beliefs, and through the legislation they've sponsored, they acknowledge that anti-police violence is, in fact, a problem. If you're asking yourself, but is it really more of a problem than police perpetrating violence, you're stuck in a zero-sum mindset. It is not the case that violence visited upon police is always blowback, or somehow inevitable, or cosmic justice. It does not, this, this issue, these two issues, violence against the police, violence perpetrated by the police, those do not have to be two sides of a debate. Well-trained, well-supported police, more secure in their safety, will actually engage in violence less. Populations policed by supported law enforcement will be safer. It is not easy to turn the current trend lines around, but it is possible. We've done it before. To do it again, we should recognize that we all need to guard our guardians so that they can best guard us. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's Advertise Cast. For advertising inquiries, go to slash The Gist. Ooparoo, Giparoo, Duparoo, and thanks for listening.